Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week, we're circling back to an integral part of product design, user research. Of course, your startup should already be talking to users, but as you bring researchers in-house, or maybe they parachute into new product teams, where do they begin? And how can your designers and product managers begin funneling those insights into their own work? To get a better feel for just that, Intercom's own director of research, Sean Townsend, is joined this week by Michael Margulis. Michael's a UX research partner at GV, the investment arm of Alphabet, formerly known as Google Ventures, where he's helping a portfolio of more than 300 companies get closer to their users. In a given year, he might be working with 35 to 40 of them on research projects. Sean first met Michael while working as a user researcher on Google's mobile search nearly a decade ago, and it was there that she first discovered Michael's start-at-the-end research framework. In short, it's a process that in many ways has shaped how we do research ourselves at Intercom. So if I know what that deliverable is, then I can work backwards from understanding what data do I need, what method will I need to get that data, and what people will I need to talk to to collect that. In his chat with Sean, Michael also details how he's able to quickly develop rapport with product teams. I'm just spending a lot of time asking them questions to understand what have you done before? What are you trying to accomplish here? Tell me more about your business. And why optimizing for speed is such a valuable skill for researchers. With startups, speed is really essential. And I've had to figure out how do I know enough of which corners to cut, but not in a bad way, but how to streamline. What's the stuff that we really need? If you like what you hear want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, you can subscribe to our show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But for now, let's hop in the studio with Sean Townsend, who's joined by Michael Margulis. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Hey, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for asking me. So I believe that you're the only researcher at a VC fund. Is that right? I believe so. So I'm really keen to understand, you know, how would you describe your role at GV, formerly known as Google Ventures? And how would you describe their mission? So GV is the venture capital arm of Alphabet. And so we have invested in something like 300 portfolio companies. And so that ranges from Everything from cybersecurity, agriculture, life sciences, healthcare, consumer products, kind of you name it, it's across the board. Uh, and what we've done is in addition to having our investing team, we've built these operational teams of experts. So we're trying to become indispensable partners, if you will. So we have design team, we have a talent hiring team, we have marketing experts, product experts. So I'm part of that design team. So in that role, what we're doing is trying to help the companies create successful products and to understand uh, their customers, understand their competitors, answer those questions that they have. So that's really my role. Um, and it's, research ends up being kind of a key tool for that because a, a startup in a lot of ways is a, it's a learning process, right? And so anything we can do as researchers to help accelerate that is kind of key. So it's kind of like accelerated learning for the startup. Right. So I, I've also read that you typically work on around 35 to 40 research projects in a year, which is a, a huge amount. So I, I'm really curious, and what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, so for me, so I'm doing a lot of hands-on work, a lot of hands-on research projects. So in a given week, I'm doing one, maybe two research projects, actual studies. So often Fridays, I'll be doing interviews. So a portion of the week is then preparing for that, doing interview guides, recruiting, you know, working with the team to understand kind of what do I need to do to conduct that and to analyze that. Um, and then the other parts of my job are 
Um, more and more, I'm doing a lot of training and teaching and coaching of research. So more and more of our of our companies have in-house researchers, but a lot of times I'm working with designers, I'm working with PMs to help them understand how to think about and incorporate research better, or maybe they're doing, often they're talking to a lot of customers, but how do they get more out of that? So often what I'm doing is um, office hours to talk to people to understand how could I help you? Basically, they come to me and like, we want to do more research. We've heard of this research thing. We want to do more of it. Or we have this very particular project and this very particular problem. What do we do? Can you help us or can you help us do it um, on our own? So it's kind of office hours. It's doing hands-on research. Some of the work that I do, <laughs> if I'm kind of being good, I'm spending some time writing and developing classes for some of the other trainings and things that I'm doing. The writing is a little more difficult for me to sit and make myself sit down and do, so that's not something I'm doing all the time. But that kind of uh, you knows a mix of those sort of activities for the course of a week. That's fascinating. So if you're also in this role of kind of training people uh, how to do their own research, you must come up against the same kinds of questions time and time again. Do you have a kind of framework that you use to actually train people in research techniques? Yeah, so... Uh, a lot of it, as you know, depends on what are they, what are the big questions they have. So for me, everything starts with questions. So um, when I'm meeting with a company to understand kind of what do they need, because often they'll come, either they don't, they know we should be doing some research and talking to customers, or they have some very particular kind of project. But at either of those kind of uh, engagements initially, I'm just spending a lot of time asking them questions to understand um, what have you done before? What are you trying to accomplish here? Kind of tell me more about your business. Like I'll have, you know, I'm always jumping into a new domain, a new business and trying to get that context and understand what are they trying to accomplish? What do they need from that? And then based on that, um, helping figure out, well, what kind of a study or what kind of research would we do? And as we're organizing that from a, a training perspective, I'm trying to be very transparent about how I'm thinking about it, how I'm planning it, how I'm thinking about the recruiting and the kinds of questions I'm asking them about the types of participants we might include, and being just very transparent about all of those parts and demonstrating it in, through the interviews seems to be a very important aspect of this. Um, a lot of times people have a, they don't have a clear picture in their head of what does this really look like when you're doing these interviews. And they talk, as I said, they talk to a lot of customers and they're very used to pitching ideas. And when, as you know, when we do these kind of interviews, it looks very different. And so having them see those interviews and see how I approach it um, is kind of a key piece of that training. I've finally realized for them to see it and understand, oh, like this is what it's supposed to look like mm-hmm. when we do it. It looks very different from all the other activities that we do when we talk to customers. And often I'll do some demo interviews and have them do some interviews and critique and kind of iterate that way. That's interesting. And what kind of things do you often notice when you do the demo interviews and do you, do you see people like asking lots of leading questions, for example? Yeah. So the common things that I find myself advising them over and over and over is I talk a lot about building an arc. So investing some time up front to build some rapport. You reap the rewards of that in an interview. Um, if you've not just jumping right into it, it's like, look, let's look at our prototype. That doesn't work if you just jump in. I, I advise people to talk, think about it kind of like a dinner party. You wouldn't somebody walks in the door of your house, you don't just jump into that, right? You kind of ease into it with some chit-chat, and it's the same in the interview. So easing into that and giving people, encouraging them to take some time to ease into it. Leading questions is a very common one. So often what I'll advise them to do is start a question with who, what, where, when, why, or how. It's much harder to ask a leading question that way um, as opposed to asking yes-no questions. Did you like it? Is it good? 
these kinds of questions. Uh, so those are big. A lot of the body language and tone questions often come up because one of the easy tips I often give people is just you need to smile. Uh, if you just start out from the very beginning, even if it's a phone interview, they can't see you. If you just start, smile, and then start the interview, it just changes the way you sound, the way you think. I think about it in terms of, for myself, like getting into a character, almost. One of the things that you have to do is is sort of parachute into startups and very quickly get your bearings on a completely new domain, you know, perhaps you know, something that you've never been involved in before, and figure out how to have some impact. So what kind of framework do you use for, for doing that? Yeah, for me, it all comes back to questions. I'm a researcher, so all I know how to do is ask questions, so I just do a lot of that. Um, ask questions and listen. So what I'll do with the company is ask them a lot about, you know, explain to me what your business is. So I'll usually have some background, but I want to hear kind of the current version of it because it's usually changed or evolved. What are the things that you're worrying about now? What are the things you're working on now? Kind of what's on your roadmap? Um, what are some of the big decisions or arguments that are ongoing in your in your company? What are the key business metrics that you're thinking about and that are really important to you to move? What are the UX kind of metrics, if they've even thought about that, you know, like the heart framework? And who are your customers? Try to tease out a lot, as much detail as I can about their vision of who these people are that they think they're building something for. All of these kinds of questions give me a good context and a good way to, in the course of, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, to really understand pretty deeply what are they worrying about. You know, I'll even ask them what are the kinds of questions you wish. You Imagine you had a magic wand and I would just boom, I could just bring you back answers to things that would help you. Like, what, what would those questions be? What's bothering you? And all of those kinds of things give me a really good sense for what they need, not a method, right? Because sometimes people say, oh, I need a survey. I need a usability study. That's, that's not what I want. I want to understand what's your big question. And because I've been doing so much of this, right, 35, 40 studies a, a year since HGV, a lot of it now is pattern matching, actually, because there's, there's certain things that are coming up over and over. So for me, if I can identify, oh, here's the big question you're asking, and I can map that to something else that I've done over and over and over. So I'll give you an example. When I was working with Flatiron Health, so they're a company that a way to think about it is it's kind of like big data versus cancer, right? They're fighting cancer. And one of their big initiatives is um, improving the, the process for identifying eligible patients for clinical trials, cancer patients, and recruiting them and putting them onto clinical trials. Uh, it turns out, they, so they know more about that than I will ever know about that, right? They have experts on staff. But the key that they're trying to figure out is how do we, how do we improve that? How do we streamline that? It turns out to be a very difficult problem for a variety of reasons. It's like finding a needle in a haystack and you have to do it at like just the right time before the patient is put on some other treatment, et cetera. So when I work with Alex, who is the product manager there, essentially, so he's, in my, in my view, the client, so I'm focused on understanding what does he need, I go through these questions with him, and I'm just, like, interviewing him like a researcher, you know, to, to understand this domain. And so then what I'm figuring out in my head is, oh, okay, so what you're trying to figure out is how do we streamline the process of accruing cancer patients to, to clinical trials, accruing is finding these eligible and recruiting them. So to me, if I, if I distill it down and I can identify that question, then I know, okay, so this is a process question. So because of the pattern matching, I know, okay, so if I have to go figure out a process, then what I know I'm going to need to create at the end, I kind of have this idea of start at the end. 
I'm going to have to create some kind of a workflow. Like I'm going to have to come back when I'm all done with this. I'm going to have to create sort of a UX map of some sort that details who's doing what and when and what's hard about that through this whole flow, all of these steps. And at the early stage, I have no idea. Like I don't know anything about clinical trials. Talk about parachuting into a domain. But I know that's what I'm going to have to get to. So if I know that's where I am and I can validate that with him, like let's imagine like we go do this and I come back with something that looks kind of like this and has these explanations and has this description of these friction points that we could address, would that be a useful thing to you? Yes. Okay. Then now I know that's the end point and I can work backwards from that because I know, okay, so if that's what I'm going to need to create, then what kind of data am I going to need? And the kind of data I'll need is like what are the steps and who's doing what and what are the frictions? Like, okay, so then if that's the data, then how, what's the method to get that data? So for me, that would be an interview. And it's a very particular kind of interview. Right, because there are some interviews you might do for a usability study or for what I call sort of the shopping shortcuts or these other th- kinds of things. But this is a process interview. So when I'm – I'll develop a full interview guide, but in my head I have this sense of a, a north star in that interview when I'm sitting and talking to a bunch of clinical research teams. So in my head I'm thinking, okay, what's the goal and what's next and what's next and what's next? Like that's the, the guiding north star in my head when I do that interview. So then I know, okay, that's the kind of interview, but then who do I need to talk to? Like, okay, that's going to be clinical research teams, these people who are at these practices, right? So I've been able to work my way backwards to plan out what is this activity going to look like in a pretty efficient, pretty quick way to be able to generate that for him. And then as is typical when I work with Alex at Flatiron, we do these very fast kind of crazy road trips. So in that case, we visited, if I remember right, it was five cancer clinics in four states in three days. And so we talked to, I don't know, 25 people and, you know, and then I developed this big UX map, which he still refers to and still uses, I don't know, two years later. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You were just alluding to Start at the End, which is a kind of a framework which 
you developed, to my knowledge, um, some years ago now, maybe even 10 years ago. Uh, I, I stumbled across it uh, on the intranet, actually, at Google when we were both working there like 10 years ago yeah. as researchers. And I can honestly say that that's really changed how I approach every single research project. And wow. it's now an approach that I teach every other researcher. And we kind of bake the, the questions that you use in your start at the end framework into our research plans, just to make sure that at Intercom, we're really starting at the end. So you've, you've, you've just alluded to how you use that a little bit in practice, but stepping back a bit, could you just explain to people that are completely unfamiliar, you know, what start at the end actually sure. is? It's very gratifying to know that somebody's found it useful. So that's exciting. So the idea is, is, like I described, I'm trying to figure out when I'm done, what do I need to create? And I'm going to work backwards from that. And so the kinds of questions that I'm asking up front are about those needs. And some of the key aspects of that are being very clear about identifying who is the decider, who is the, the decision maker, my client. And so I focus like a researcher on that person to understand what do you really need and what are you going to want to get out of this? And in that conversation, the kinds of things I'm trying to figure out are, as I've said, what are your big questions? What are you going to do with this when I'm done? Because um, that helps me understand. It's a way to validate what I think I'm hearing and also validate, is this actually going to be a useful thing to do? Because sometimes people say, oh, it's just going to be really interesting. If it's just going to be interesting, I'm not going to have 300 companies. So I'm not going to spend my time doing that. If you're making some very important decision or product change or something, that's good. When are you going to need this done is kind of an important like scheduling detail. But if you ask somebody, you know, when do you need it? What you hear is, well, I needed it yesterday. And so often what I'll do is I'll ask, what's the latest date that this is still useful to you? And it kind of changes the way they think about it because then they back up and they think about their other milestones and, well, where are we going to fit this in actually? So some of those questions help me have that kind of initial conversation with somebody to figure out what am I going to do and what do we need? And then as I described – I figure out that end deliverable and then plan backwards. So if I know what that deliverable is, then I can work backwards from uh, understanding what data do I need, what method will I need to get that data, and what people will I need to talk to to, to collect that. Exactly. I think that it's the reframing of that question that you use. It's a seemingly small difference, you know, instead of asking someone, like, when do you want this? But, like, what's the latest date that I could deliver this and it would still be useful? That just has a massive impact on the answers you get and ultimately the, the impact that the project has. It forces people to take a step back and think about their own project and their own timelines in a very different way. It also helps the, the researcher have more impact because ultimately it's, that's an amazing tool for prioritization, right? Because it helps you filter out the projects that are kind of the nice-to-know projects of which there are, you know, always too many to resource. Mm -hmm. And then the actual really important questions that need to be answered and that the business will actually make decisions on. Yeah. It also gives me an opening to negotiate what I'm actually going to do because there are times that something could be very important and they actually need it right away, that there is a window of something that's going to happen. Either there's a launch coming up or there's a meeting with a partner. Like, they might need it right away and that's okay. It doesn't mean that I, when I ask that question that they have to give me some far off date. But then we can negotiate okay, well, this is what I could give you. Like, this is what I could actually get done in that time, and this is what you'd get as a result. If I had more time, I could do more. And then we can decide whether that's useful or not. And so that 
having that opportunity is also helpful to me to know what level of rigor or effort to put into something. What do they actually need? Absolutely. And you also just bring up a great point, which is sort of alluding to the fact people can assume research takes a long time always. And that's really not the case, you know. But in order to have impact, you do need to know like what your window of time is. Yeah. And, and that issue of time has been super important factor for me. So one of the things over many years that's happened to me is I've learned to adapt what I'm doing for speed. I used to work at a product consulting firm where we do these very long, very big, very expensive projects. You know, it was several of us for many weeks. And then I went to Walmart.com where it was just me and I was working very fast. And then I got to Google and it was going a little faster. And, and GV now with startups, it's speed is really essential. And I've had to figure out how do I how do I know enough of which corners to cut, but not, not in a bad way, but how to streamline? What's the stuff that we really need? And how do I adapt some of those older methods to just kind of do it quicker? And be more smaller, efficient. Be more efficient, yeah. do them in bite-sized pieces sometimes. And the speed has been something that has allowed me to overcome certain objections that you can get sometimes, maybe not objections, but resistance that you might hear to research. Well, it's, it's going to slow us down. We're really in a rush. You know, we're a startup and we're fast. And they might be fast, but not going in the right direction, which is the risk. And so it helps validate that. But if I can do whatever I'm doing at very high speed, it reduces any resistance to incorporating it into what they're doing. Like, well, wouldn't you want to know? Like, let's assume you're doing everything right. Wouldn't you want me to validate just to be sure? Yeah. Well, if you could actually do that in a few days, that would be, yeah, that's fine. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are working at startups and would love to know more about the kind of efficiencies that you've figured out <laughs> so that you can do research you know, efficiently and, and faster. Do you have any tips to share? Um, so some of them come just from experience and doing this a lot. So I can just do it quickly. I'm sure you're the same way. There are things that now you do faster than you did 10 years ago or longer. Some of the things that I do are, for example, I will schedule interviews in a way that it's clumped. So an example of this is if I do a study on a Friday, for example, um, what I'll do is I'll schedule five one-hour interviews on Friday in a given day. One of the reasons I do that is um, it's a lot easier to make sure the team watches because they, they will block out a day to do it. And I won't do an, the study unless the company is participating. I won't go off and do it on my own typically because – and this is part of speeding it up, is that I want them to experience it with me because if I'm more of a tour guide than a reporter, um, it actually accelerates the communication and kind of the digestion of what I'm doing into the company because they've seen it and experienced it together. We've done it. I've led it, but they've just gotten it. And otherwise, I, then I don't have to spend as much time doing analysis and reporting and communicating to the team. It's just it's done at the end of the day. Um, so that speeds it up a lot. I do my own recruiting primarily, and that has sped up the turnaround time rather than working with a vendor. So vendors have gotten much faster since I've been doing this, and there are more and more services that have popped up that I use. But if I do it, especially if I'm looking for consumers, um, depends a lot on whom, what your kind of project you're doing and whom you're recruiting. Um, but there are a lot now of these services like um, Respondent.io and some of these others that I've found myself using more and more that have enabled me to very quickly find the people I need. And turn that around. I use a lot of Craigslist. Um, surprisingly, the trick with Craigslist, with any of these, is being very careful about how you write the recruiting screener to find participants. And I think there's a, some art and science to writing those well, but that helps me do that. 
that sounds intriguing. What do you do in your Craigslist screeners? Um, so they, you need to write a screener. It's like any survey in a way that you have to write it so that nobody can tell what the right answer is. I don't reveal what I'm looking for. So I don't post something that would say, you know, let's say I'm working for a company that leases short-term rentals of apartments. I don't say I'm looking for people who leased, recently leased a short-term rental apartment. Right? I, don't, I don't want people to say, yes, I would love your $125. I will sign up for this. So I don't want the, the incentive to kind of affect how they're answering my questions. So I'm trying to get the truth. So I'll try to frame them as much as I can, as openly as I can. So I'm not saying they're not. It gets back to what we said about the who, what, when, where, why question. So I will try to write them as open-ended as I can and not just say, did you rent an apartment in the past three months? Yes, I did. Okay. that's mm -hmm. To me, that question is the same as like, would you like me to give you $125? Yes, I would. So there's some of that kind of thing that I do that I just try to write it in a very open-ended way. And I try to put in questions there that are intended to obscure what I'm actually looking for so that people can't tell. So maybe there's some other red herring kinds of right. questions or red herring answers within a question. Mm -hmm. And, of course, like recruitment is so, so important to getting like high-quality insights. Definitely. Uh, especially when you're doing these small qualitative studies. You know, each person carries a lot of weight, so... Yeah, it's so important to, to have these tricks up your sleeve to, to find precisely the right people and, and weed out the, the people who are inappropriate. To yeah. And it's why I spend um, some fair amount of time with the company that I'm working with to get them to detail for me who they think their customers are, which is this interesting thing because people will explain it in a fairly qualitative way, right? We're looking for people who are like this. And what I need to do is translate that into something very specific that I can measure or identify through my recruiting screener, right? So if they say, oh, we want people who are, you know, what's the, the typical thing is, right? Tech savvy. Like, <laughs> great. Okay. Now I can't ask, are you tech savvy, right? Um, so I need to figure out and I'll ask them, like, what does that mean to you guys, right? Because in, in a very specific context, that could mean they also use a certain, certain other tools or other technologies or not, right? That you're using certain apps or you're you know, driving a certain car. It depends on what that thing is. And so I'm looking for, for this context, what's, what are the specific hints that I can then actually look for? So you were mentioning earlier that a lot of your job at this point becomes kind of pattern matching. And I was curious if after all these hundreds of studies that you've done at GV, whether you've found a way to kind of share those insights across the whole company? You know, do you have some kind of internal tool that allows you to do that? Uh, I don't. I think the internal tool at this point is probably just my brain. <laughs> um, so it's not a very good tool. So a couple parts of that. So one is each of these companies, whatever they're doing is completely confidential to every other company. So I have to be very careful about maintaining that. So I don't, I don't do a study for one company and then share that with somebody else, right? It's very specific um, and confidential. So that's one piece. The other aspect of it is that what I've found is that the it's in the details for a lot of these products, and the details depend on the context very heavily. So if I'm discovering something for that I'm creating for oncologists, when I'm then working for a company that's you know game time sells tickets online, you know through mobile, like they're just different interactions, different conventions, different expectations for those users, for those contexts. So I think that the, the insights, as much as they are, that are common, end up being more 
like best practices. So those would be things like understand what the conventions are in your domain and use those. You don't break that. If there's something that you need to do that's different, do that. Like reinvent the parts that matter, but don't reinvent the parts that are familiar and that people will use. So an example of this is if you're doing some e-commerce site, people know how to use e-commerce sites. Don't redesign where you put a buy button. Don't, re, you know, don't do those things. Just follow the convention and it'll just be simpler. Other kinds of things that are common, best practices, is good onboarding is something that people often forget. They get very focused on their product and they forget, oh, when this first person comes in, they have no idea and they have no orientation. Copy is super important. So the kind of thing that I we have found over and over and that we're often advising is, you know, look very carefully at your copy. One of the main reasons somebody is stumbling is because you've written this marketing speak about what your product is or how to use this and they don't understand it. And just be blunt and be clear and tell somebody what it is, how to use it, what to do. So these kinds of, I don't know that they're insights that are design insights. They're just best practices that we have seen over and over and over where people could do better. I imagine a lot of people ask you for advice about how they can start doing user research themselves. Where do you tend to point people when they ask you that? Well, definitely go and check out all our gv.com library articles, right? So we have a ton of stuff that we've written um, on Medium. Uh, so those are, uh, it's a shameless plug, but that's the stuff that I, I've, I've written it pretty specifically targeted for startups, and have always worried a little bit when researchers would go read it and like, oh, this seems maybe a little like I'm cutting too many corners or anything. But it's really targeted at founders and startups to almost like some of it is like recipes. Like here's what just what you need to do. Here are the tips. Here's, you know, just follow this and you'll work. It'll work out fine. So that's the first place I send people. There's a great set of articles on running research sprints. Uh, there's a video of a class that I used to teach on quick and dirty research just kind of goes through the basics. So those are good starts. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today and for inspiring my research career. Thanks so much. <laughs> it's great to get a chance to see you and to talk to you today. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.